You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 10th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. Many news journalists are no longer saving their stories for the 10 o'clock news broadcast or the morning papers. They are tweeting it immediately, which is now driving the cycle. What we used to say is, you know, a week is a long time in politics. It's actually now half an hour. Brexit dominates the headlines, but uncertainty rules. Has media coverage bridged or expanded the schism at the heart of British civil society? My guests Joy Ledico and Somnath Butterbile will discuss that and the day's other news, including the US's withdrawal from northern Syria once more casts the fate of European jihadis into question. And as a special EU department exposes another fake news website, we'll ask if we're getting any better at spotting the stuff. Plus, when visiting Oslo, one might expect to be met with chilly weather and exorbitant alcohol bills. And one might be right. But there's also plenty to be said about the city's art scene, too. We'll reflect on the growing soft power assets of Norway's capital. I'm Ben Ryland. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today in the studio by Somnath Butterbile, lecturer in media in development and international journalism at SOAS, and the broadcaster and journalist, Joy Ledico. We'll start right here in the British capital today, where there has certainly been no shortage of frustrating news headlines in recent years, specifically of the Brexit variety. Ever since Britain shocked the world by voting to leave the European Union, despite countless forecasts of dire economic consequences. Media outlets have been saturated with vague predictions of whether this latest key development might be the kick everyone needs to get something done. Joy, of course, we are mere weeks away from that Brexit deadline and still, arguably, we haven't managed to get anything really done about it at all. Are people justified, do you think, in feeling just a little bit frustrated by how Brexit hasn't just been carried out by the politicians but also covered in the press? Well, this has been created, in a sense, by the political class that set itself a series of deadlines. The first one was March 29th. Then there was an extension for two weeks. Then there was a promise of a new prime minister. uh, And now... And then Boris Johnson promised uh, to announce that he and Merkel were going to spend 30 days and get it done in 30 days. Um, This is their own internal deadlines. In terms of the media reporting it... Um, this story has been winding up and winding up and winding up over three years. And if you were watching intensively in March when there were a heavy series of debates over Theresa May's proposed deal, it felt like the news was never going to stop running. Uh, BBC News channels literally flicked straight over to, to uh, show Parliament itself. People were tuning in. I mean, there were sort of half a million viewers. It was, you know, it was beginning to kind of come up to soap opera levels in terms of how many people actually tuned in. Behind that, there are two things. Number one, there are a huge number of journalists working on Brexit, so each one needs a story break, and so each one will be pumping out their line. Secondly, many news journalists are no longer saving their stories for the 10 o'clock news broadcast or the morning papers. They are tweeting it immediately, which is now driving the cycle, so that what we used to say is, you know, a week is a long time in politics. It's actually now half an hour. 
<laughs> That's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's true that the, the the appetite for news, Somnath, moves a lot quicker. But in, in terms of the events of, of this, the story actually having some sort of end, I mean, Joy described it as a, as a soap opera, but I'm quite sure I've seen episodes of Days of Our Lives that moved lo- a lot quicker than this story <laughs> has. Uh, do you sense that there is a bit of frustration in the public and that perhaps is leading to this this conclusion where people are simply, rather than waiting to see how it ends, they're, they're just switching off. I think one of the fundamental problems lies in how we frame the question that um, for, how does the public react? No one knows, you know. We have blamed so much on Joe Public. Joe Public is disenfranchised, so they've done Brexit. Now they're frustrated, so they want Brexit done. No one knows, right? Um, but the problem of Brexit, uh, I think has started far before the event itself, before the referendum itself. It's, as you say, how the media works in this country and in most of the Western democracies these days, that people feel, feel disenfranchised, people feel not part of the, uh, of the uh, uh, feel uh, distance from democracy itself. Uh, on one hand, there's frustration against the so-called elites. The other, other side is that we are being swamped by migrants and refugees. Uh, so in both sides, you feel attacked and then you want to shut down. It's not necessarily xenophobic, and I don't think uh, we have done very well to say Brexit voting classes are generally either racist or xenophobes, but there is a certain fear of um, how we are represented, what we feel, how the press reports us. We just don't feel part of the nation state. And Brexit reporting has done nothing to alleviate that. So I think it's a broader question about how media works in nation states, how people, how participated, uh, how people feel represented or not. And uh, we haven't done ourselves any favours in that regard. Mm. I mean, it is a difficult thing to report on. It is basically reporting constantly on a story that doesn't seem to have an end and doesn't seem to have any certainty in it either. Uh, Joy, another example of the difficulty here might be uh, some complaints that that I've noticed popping up quite, well, certainly more more often than I think they ever did before. Complaints regarding uh, this this mechanism we use in the in the media often vox pops. Uh, it's a timeless tradition, I suppose you could say, where uh, this is where the media will go out. It's usually on television, often on radio as well. You go out to a community somewhere, talk to the actual people to, to get a sense for what, what's really driving the story. What do the people actually think? Vox Pops are, of course, not the same as a scientific polling method. They're very, very different indeed. They're used to illustrate a point in a story that has already sort of been decided before the story is actually made, isn't it? Is there a misunderstanding there and is that anything new? Well, you see, I would say challenge Somnathan's idea yeah. that the public has been ignored because, in fact, you're correct to say that there have been a huge number of vox pops over the last few years, um, often where um, a, you know, often a BBC reporter is bussed off to the middle of nowhere to that person whose voice has never been heard. Mm. I would also say at this point in time, a large number of people have Twitter accounts and therefore their voices are being heard, perhaps in sort of smaller pools. I mean, the, ev- the, the endless vox pop yes. machine, isn't it? It's but, a factory. Of, but everybody of... does have a voice. What it has done is drown out certain experts and also certain kind of rather slower deeper, kind of more meaningful takes on what is going on. So you are constantly kind of being wound up by this kind of fury of somebody who feels like they are in opposition to you. But largely nobody has gone to study the problems at anything more than a quick Google search depth. 
And I think one of the things that could be recommended to any British listener at the moment is to actually go and pick up some books. Go and read a book on the British Constitution. Go and read a book on the history of Ireland. And it will just give you a kind of level of information and understanding, not just about the situation at the moment, but also how slowly democracy works, which will explain why it has taken us three years just to get to this point. This is not the only time in Western history, or in fact, the history of the Commonwealth, that negotiations take so long in order to achieve a certain point. And so we, we are feeling very expectant. But in fact, this is a blink of the eyelid. Mm. Just to come back to Joe's point very quickly, uh, I don't think it was talking about vo- what I meant mm. to say was vox pops. It's how um, do the public feel a part of the democratic process? The, one of the biggest things has been frustration. I don't think I was talking specifically of the media itself, but how does uh, it, you know, in a kind of larger public sphere question, uh, do we feel part? Why? So many of us saying 1%, 99% or, you know, uh, uh, being targeted by outsiders. That was a larger thrust of my argument. But Somnath, we, we, a, bigger, a bigger question here might be, uh, do journalists feel involved in the democratic process as well? Because often one of the criticisms that comes from an audience is that uh, journalists aren't actually part of this process, that they're not reflecting what people actually feel and the concerns that real people have, and that journalists are somehow innocent or, or uninvolved bystanders that aren't involved in anything at all. Do you think journalists personally do feel as if they are playing an active role in democracy rather than a, a reporting role, rather, rather than one who's standing on the sidelines and simply recording what's happening? I think, uh, again, I'll go back to Joyce's point that journalists today perhaps are far more involved than 20 years, 30 years back when it would be only you know, Whitehall or Westminster sources. In that sense, we go out, um, journalists go out far more, meet people more. There are many more outlets. So therefore, the nature of reporting has definitely changed. Um, in their quest to be objective, um, and this is, you know, I'm not talking about the Guardian-Telegraph divide, in the quest to be objective, and the very nature of journalism, mass media at least, demands both sides be presented, there's a sense of balance. So can journalists be politically involved? They shouldn't be, but they are. But uh, they're far more invested today uh, in everyday politics than they were 30 years before. But I also think the public feels that they should they have a sway in everything that happens. And so when a piece of news comes out that they don't like, they become very vicious mm. or you can end up with some serious viciousness against that journalist. That journalist, in theory, is only the kind of vessel through which a message passes. Um, and it's sort of corrupting our, you know, this, this problem is corrupting our constitution, our national politics and our media. And... This is probably why we're quite hungry to get a resolution, because at the moment everything does feel very, very fragile. But but there is this point that we think that something will be resolved on the day Brexit happens. It won't. Another can of worms will open up when you start your negotiations. I mean, this this is this false promise of post-Brexit, something will fundamentally change. I don't think so. Somnath Butterbile and Joy Ladico there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories that we've been following today. Thanks, Ben. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has defended Turkey's incursion into Syria after a wave of international criticism. Erdogan says the military operation supports Syria's territorial integrity by confronting Kurdish control of the country's northeast. There have been reports of heavy fighting in the area and of tens of thousands of people leaving their homes. 
A prominent Jewish group has accused German authorities of providing inadequate security at a synagogue that was attacked by a far-right gunman. Though the gunman did not get into the building, he killed two bystanders in an attack in the East German city of Halle. A 27-year-old man was arrested after the shooting. Up to 750,000 homes and businesses in California were left without power yesterday as the Pacific Gas and Electric Co. made imposed plant cuts. The unprecedented move was designed to stop the network's wiring sparking wildfires during dry and windy weather, which the state is currently experiencing. The company is now restoring power, but it says it could take days before all affected customers are back to full power. And the Nobel Prize for Literature for 2018 has been awarded to Polish author Olga Tokarczuk, while the 2019 prize goes to Austrian author Peter Handke. Two winners were named because the prize was not awarded last year. The Swedish Academy, which oversees the award, suspended it last year after a sexual assault scandal. In an interview with Monocle 24, Olga Tokarczuk described how her experience as a psychologist in her attitude to fiction. As a psychologist, I don't believe in the world which is objective outside us. We are always projecting our inner thoughts into it. So we are the authors of sense outside. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Ben. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Ryland here with Joy Ladiko and Somnath Butterbile. Moving along now, as we heard at the top of the program, Turkish troops are continuing their assault in Syria, with at least 16 Kurds having been reported killed. There are now reports that two British members of a group aligned with the Islamic State have been taken into U.S. custody. Alexander Koti and El Shafi El Sheikh are understood to belong to a British group of ISIS militants known as the Beatles. Now, Somnath, the UK's policy on cases like this has been one of more or less ignorance. It is a tricky question and yet one not likely to arouse much public sympathy either. I mean, I think the question will be what can nation states do in situations like this there are about and what f- should they do what I should think. they do uh, there are about what approximately 5000 european uh, citizens in these camps or fighting the isis war there are about 800 britons um, uh, supposedly uh, one is you leave them there open to uh, the legal system either in iraq or in syria which is pretty much uh, at stretching point. The second is the international courts of justice. Uh, they don't have jurisdiction over foreign fighters. The third would be to bring them back home. This sends a message that the West is not oblivious to uh, Muslims or Islam, uh, which has been made a case of. Second, there is a conversation which might stop or at least reduce uh, future generation of fighters, and there's a process of rehabilitation. So the the only sane and um, legal and moral thing would be a process of bringing back. Uh, well, on that point, the mother of one of these men has taken her fight to the Supreme Court in a bid to stop his extradition to the United States amid fears that he could face the death penalty. Now, in principle, of course, the UK would stand against its citizens being subjected to capital punishment in foreign countries. Uh, in practice, Joy, however, these situations often seem to come down to whatever's politically expedient. And uh, as I suggested earlier, what's politically expedient in cases like this is usually 
to just let it go. Well, you can dispossess somebody of their citizenship. And at some point you realise that these people have gone out to be fighters and therefore they are prisoners of war. They're in a state in which the UK has no consular services. They have done so at their own risk and therefore they've given up the protection of their home country. While I, um, you know, I like Somnath's idea... And in some ways, I appreciate it. And in certain cases, such as Shamima, Shamima Begum, I very much thought she was a minor when she went out. And there was a clear case that she could be rehabilitated within British society. And she was one of our children. Some of these guys have gone out and committed absolute atrocities. And this idea that we are now going to be kind of softly, softly through the justice systems. I'm terribly sorry. You're in a place where there is no law. And in some senses, the the US justice system is fairer than anything they will get on the ground, which will be a whole series of guns. Um, I would also say, just as counter to this, while we are punishing the ISIS fighters, we are also turning a blind eye and allowing our very our allies, the Kurds, to be punished. And indeed, you've said, just named a number of Kurds who have been killed. Those are the people we are meant to be looking after. Those are people we have extended uh, protection, funding, all sorts to, and we have not looked after them. And those are probably the people we should be looking after first. Somnath, it is a difficult question, isn't it? I mean, there is the there there is the reality that yes, it is a lawless place where these people have been carrying out uh, atrocious acts. There are laws here in the United Kingdom. If they were to be brought to the United Kingdom, uh, arguably, they could stand trial. That comes with its own set of complexities. Of course, uh, there's the practical dilemma of how such trials could possibly take place. Uh, They would occur here in Britain, but all the evidence and often the witnesses as well would be who knows where. I mean, that's a very, very difficult argument. And in some cases, you might look at that and say, well, this trial isn't can't possibly be fair and balanced and, and follow a proper legal process. So what's the point? So where will you do it? The question is, is your nation state big enough? Is it powerful enough? Does it feel strong enough? Can you actually leave your citizens? Whatever the UK system does not allow for capital punishment, right? If your UK citizen somewhere has been granted capital punishment, you are bound by law to say no. Um, The moral question goes beyond he has committed this, shouldn't have done. It's what nation states are supposed to do. The reason nation states came into being, one of its fundamental points was you protect your citizens, you look after your citizens, and you punish your citizens. But they are your citizens. Uh, The process of law might be difficult. Uh, We might be moving into uncharted territory, but we are legally bound, morally bound, to bring them back and try them here. It's There's no softly, softly, the full force of law, yes. But you ha- otherwise, what do you do? You show that the propaganda against you, that you do not care for certain citizens, is going to be re-emphasized. Hmm. Much more to be said on that topic. We do need to move along to our final topic of the day, though. Uh, the phrase fake news, as we know, has been all but, uh, shall we say, corrupted by the current US president. Nevertheless, the term, when used correctly, still carries meaning. Uh, The European Union has been grappling with that, in fact. It's set up a task force charged with uncovering organised disinformation campaigns, and it has scored quite the scoop. A news website that was purporting to be an official source of information related to the European Parliament, at least it gave that impression, was in fact an aggregator of content produced by Russian news outlet RT, or Russia Today. Joy, this particular news news website uh, had 145,000 Facebook followers. 
That seems like an awfully large number. Are we getting any better at spotting yeah, fake news? The European Parliament should be delighted that 145,000 people are taking <laughs> such a, a detailed interest in what's going on there. Um, I think uh, this would put puts them in a difficult position. What I'm not clear about in this story is whether Russia Today was deliberately feeding EP Today or whether EP Today was... Uh, just drawing down the information. I think what I read between the lines yeah. was that Russia Today seems to have very, very uh, relaxed guidelines on how its content can be reused. So it's almost inviting this sort of situation to happen, if not deliberately igniting it. And I would also suggest that the, the similarity of their names might suggest there may have been some link right at the, at the foundation very true. of it. Um, the problem the European um, Union has here is essentially one of its main tenets is this idea of democracy and the rights to free speech. And if you sit down and start saying, well, we've got to turn off this internet channel because it's fake news, who are you to judge what is right or wrong in this situation? And also, you know, we don't have any um, legislation saying you may only tell the truth, you may lie. It is part of one of the freedoms of um, Western democracies. What do you do? Well, indeed, what do you do, Somnath? I hope you can answer that question. Uh, because, of course, uh, mistrust in traditional news is, uh, well, it's almost old hat now, isn't it? But, I mean, the problem now, and Joy sort of suggests this too, uh, is that we, we no longer seem to take journalism on face value. This idea, I think, has much to do with having so much technology at our hands. It almost seems as if the individual has has pick, picked up this, this responsibility, this personal responsibility for them being the judge and jury on whether something is real news or fake news or deserves to be reported or was missing a certain angle. I mean, is is that part of the problem, that, that, that people feel as if journalism is no longer good enough? The ultimate question is, no, 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 I understand you're telling me what happened, but, but prove it. I think you're right in the sense that technology has suddenly given the means of control of production to a vast majority of people. I mean, anyone can today be a journalist. You don't need um, much uh, beyond a computer or a phone. If I mean, if I may just, just stretch the concept a bit, um, even before mass media, Joy and we are having a chat, fake, fake news has always existed. You know, go back to the 1930s, see Hitler, how Hitler did propaganda against the Jews, and you will see fake news. So it has always existed. The Allies did the same uh, kind of carpet bombing of fake news uh, on, the, on Axis powers. The state, through the last uh, century, has relied on fake news for state propaganda. What has happened post-1990s? and the invasion of the World Wide Web, is the means of production has been taken away from the state. And this has, though the state still use, as you say, Mr. Trump has given it a good or a bad name. Russia uses it. China controls it. So the problem is not necessarily that this is a new beast. It's a beast which has now become uncontrollable. And somehow we are talking about AI being the new benefactor. Somehow it will solve all problems. Technology never solves problems. Technology never solves problems. Oh, dear. Uh, Joy, just finally on this, we have to wrap up this this part of the show. But uh, the, the flip side of this whole conversation, of course, is that this news website, so to speak, has been discovered by this task force that was set up by the European Union. Is this actually a good news story that even though this thing managed to attract 145,000 Facebook followers... It has been discovered. It's been discovered and it's been made public and anybody who's following it now is sitting there thinking, oh God, I might be, you know, this might be a problem. But uh, I would go back to this idea of fake, you talk about the kind of mass production of news. I mean, you must must bear this in mind, it's sort of things like 
Burberry and Gucci are counterfeited all over the world and in the modern world with much more efficiency. People tend to know what they're buying at certain points in time. This happens to be a particularly good fake, but we've always known it. The, the, The major problem I see coming down the line is that the Burberries and Gucci's of our news industry are all putting up paywalls and therefore those people who aren't prepared or don't have the money to pay £100 a year for uh, news will slowly be reduced to only seeing news that is very likely to be mass circulated and potentially counterfeited. But the other problem here is that we tend to think that news is for free. If you only take free things, you'll never get good things. Somnath Butterbile and Joy Ladeco, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, Oslo's soft power assets. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Rylan. While Arab states have poured billions into expanding their cultural assets, does Northern Europe have a new cultural powerhouse in the making itself? Monocle's editorial team reflects. When visiting Oslo, one might expect to be met with chilly weather and exorbitant alcohol bills. And one might be right. But there's plenty to be said about the city's art scene, too. The Oslo Art Biennale hosts its second edition later this month, while the privately owned Kistefoss Sculpture Park has just opened a spectacular gallery built by Björk Ingels. Next year, a vast national museum is opening. It will be the biggest art gallery in the Nordics, as is the new and improved Munch Museum, a towering waterfront tribute to the nation's most famous painter. Ask a Norwegian what to see in the capital, and there's a good chance they'll point you to one of these new galleries. We often think of super wealthy nations as trying to build culture and engaging in a sort of global arts race, what with the Abu Dhabi Louvre or the National Museum of Qatar. Is Norway a Scandi equivalent? Unlike some of its Gulf counterparts, the country does have a rich history of artists, from Edvard Munch to sculptor Gustav Vigeland, and its raft of new institutions are helping to give the city a fresh edge. A comment there from Monocle's editorial team. That's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yolin Gothan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, stay tuned for a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View is back at the very same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Ben Ryland. Bye-bye. <laughs>